Magnesium is integral for 600-plus biochemical processes in the human body, and yet most people are deficient. Common signs of magnesium deficiency include fatigue, muscle weakness, stunted growth, poor immune function, poor concentration and memory, hormonal imbalances, bone and teeth problems. Most people think grabbing a bottle of whatever cheap stuff on the shelf or at the top of Amazon will solve this. The common misconception is that consuming more magnesium will automatically improve health and well-being. The truth is there are various forms of magnesium, each of which is essential for a variety of physiological processes. Most people are deficient in all forms of magnesium, while even those considered healthy typically only ingest one or two kinds. Consuming all seven of magnesium's primary forms is the key to accessing all of its health benefits. That's why we pack seven forms of 450 milligrams of elemental magnesium into each serving of Wild Mag Complex. One dose a day is all you need. Learn more and grab a bottle today at wildfoods.co. Use code GENIUS for 10% off your order. Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. I have Dr. Mark Milstein. He's the author of The Age Proof Brain, New Strategies to Improve Memory, Protect Immunity, and Fight Off Dementia. So we're going to talk about that book and his past and his current work. Welcome, Mark. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me on. I'm happy to be here. Yeah, if you can, just tell listeners a bit about your background, how you came to write this book, and uh, you know, concern yourself with uh, the health of people's brains. Yeah, definitely. So I actually, I started out as a researcher, a scientist. I was part of a group at UCLA that was actually studying breast cancer. And what what was discovered at the time is that something or a protein involved in, in breast cancer was also involved in learning and memory. And at the time, that was really interesting that something in one part of the body or a specific protein that was involved in in cancer was also involved in a different part of the the body in learning and memory. And just around that time, our understanding of brain science was really, I would say, just like really exploding in terms of just really finding out how the brain works. I, I mean, of course, we're still learning, but it was really a turning point in terms of how things were working in the brain and then how that led to really actionable solutions to, for example, improve sleep or memory or manage stress. So I started focusing much more on brain health. And there's just like a real dire need um, to take all this like amazing, all these amazing breakthroughs and just break it down in a way that is understandable and usable. And so that combined with some some personal history that um, I, I talk about in the book in the very beginning about I had some family members that suffered from some from memory loss, dementia, Alzheimer's. So just that was really a key part of, of why I, I wrote the book and just really trying to get this information out to people that there are really things that we can do to protect our brain day to day and long term. Have you spent a lot of time working on your brain or have you really spent it on helping other people? And you know, what, have, what have you noticed? Yeah. So I, I mean, improvement, have you seen in yourself or maybe an example you could think of? Yeah, absolutely. So I would say that I think that was part of what really drove my interest was that, for example, I wasn't 
naturally the best sleeper. <laughs> and as we uh, learned how important sleep was, really what's happening in the brain and how critical it is. And then also understanding, oh, wow, there's things based upon how our brain works that can really help sleep. That was really part of, I would say, a big driving force in my, my interest. So I would say I use these things. I need these things more than anybody. Yeah, I use them every day to end the days that I don't use them. Like, for example, I'll just give a quick the quick tip is that something that we now understand is that you actually prepare for every night's sleep in the morning. You have this clock in your brain called a brain clock or your suprachiasmatic nucleus. And it's it's actually the discovery of it actually won the Nobel Prize pretty recently. But it's like a countdown timer to when you're going to fall asleep. And you start the countdown by getting outside in natural light in the morning, like within about a half hour of getting up, you know, just like 10 minutes of getting outside helps you fall asleep at night. And I found for myself, and as I speak about this, and I, I get a lot of feedback at that little simple tip that seems like nothing, it seems like, oh, yeah, a little bit of morning light. But we live in a world where, you know, it's easy to either stay home or work from home or commute to an office in which you're not getting outside that much. And so that little tip of a little bit more daylight in the morning or outside time, um, is really optimal in starting this countdown to help you fall asleep at night. So that's just one example of many of things that I've taken and used and 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 I find are, are very helpful. But why, why does that tip help? Because it uh, entrains your brain to know, okay, it's day and then clocks start being set for later so you're able to fall asleep better? Yeah, so interestingly, that this brain clock or the suprachiasmatic nucleus it's part of your part of your circadian rhythm, so it it's reset every day. So you actually Basically, by getting outside, you start this countdown and till to when you're going to fall asleep at night. And what's interesting about it is it doesn't just play a role in sleep, this this brain clock. We now understand it's like a master regulator. It's like a, a conductor to a symphony orchestra. And it also plays a role in, in mood. That's why we know that like seasonal affective disorder where there's less light in certain parts of the world during certain times of the year. Um, people have a, a greater increased risk of issues with mood or higher risk of depression. You know, of course, not the only factor, but we realize that light plays a role and then also plays a role in metabolism. So it's interesting that these little things that, you know, they're not the whole picture, but they're a piece of the puzzle and they can be really, really helpful. Um, what are some other aspects of the, you know, I don't know if you have a, call it a brain protocol or, you know, what are some of the highlights of the protocol that you recommend for people? Yeah. Um, another thing that's important is walking. I mean, I mean, I try to highlight in when I talk and when I, and in, in the book is, you know, nobody wants to make major changes. <laughs> most people, most people are like, what's the smallest thing that has the biggest impact? And besides the morning light, and this is something you can combine with the morning light is that taking a walk, there's these interesting studies that show that walking for about 30 minutes a day, lowers the risk of memory loss. So I should put in perspective that we now know that based upon key lifestyle factors, one can lower their risk of dementia, Alzheimer's, memory loss by about 30 to 60%, which is a really big step forward in our understanding of the impact of lifestyle on brain health. And so, you know, optimizing your sleep is one of those. And, and that's important because we can talk about why that is. There's something that's happening during sleep. But when we talk about, you know, another tip besides sleep, this walking tip lowers risk of memory loss by about 60% lowers risk of dementia. And people are like, well, you know, why, why like just walking? But we now know that when we walk, we release a factor in our brain called uh, BDNF. And it's a factor that really keeps our brain cells healthy and it keeps them kind of more youthful. And that's really a, another big take home message of the book is that we clearly see now that you can make your brain essentially like slow down the aging process of it. Your brain's age doesn't have to be your age. And Besides sleep, this 30 minutes of walking 
uh, doesn't have to all be done at the same time. But in a you know in a world where it's another thing that can easily be overlooked, and we realize, wait, 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 I'm not walking as much as I as much as I used to be, or as much as I could be. And then something that's really simple and practical within that 30 minutes of walking is that there, there's these really fascinating studies that show that like getting your heart rate up like a brisk walk, something as simple as a brisk walk for like six to 10 minutes. Also, people significantly perform better on like memory tests. And we clearly see this in these all these multiple studies that you're, the pace of your walking, you don't have to power walk everywhere you go, but a little bit of a faster gait or walking pace within that 30 minutes for about six to 10 minutes is something else that has this boost for memory. So, you know, our brain is tied to okay. our walking and our balance, all these things. So, yeah. Another quick tip there. How, how long is it boost for? So, yeah. So it, there's all these different studies, but there's studies that have shown that like within doing a, a like a, getting your heart rate up for a few minutes, people score better on a memory test, like within a few hours, at, like well, a few hours span after their, their heart rate is up. And then also we see this protection cumulative long-term. So that's pretty interesting. I know. Magnesium is integral for 600 plus biochemical processes in the human body. And yet most people are deficient. Common signs of magnesium deficiency include fatigue, muscle weakness, stunted growth, poor immune function, poor concentration and memory, hormonal imbalances, bone and teeth problems. Most people think grabbing a bottle of whatever cheap stuff on the shelf or at the top of Amazon will solve this. The common misconception is that consuming more magnesium will automatically improve health and well-being. The truth is there are various forms of magnesium, each of which is essential for a variety of physiological processes. Most people are deficient in all forms of magnesium, while even those considered healthy typically only ingest one or two kinds. Consuming all seven of magnesium's primary forms is the key to accessing all of its health benefits. That's why we pack seven forms of 450 milligrams of elemental magnesium into each serving of Wild Mag Complex. One dose a day is all you need. Learn more and grab a bottle today at wildfoods.co. Use code GENIUS for 10% off your order. After I exercise somewhat heavily, I'm clearer and better able to get work done and think for you know maybe like an hour or two. Yeah. Not that I fall off after that too much, but that's probably the peak time. So I, do you have that suggestion for people that, you know, after the exercise, they should work maybe on the most, uh, I don't know, thought requiring work they have or the most brain power intensive work they have? Yeah. So I, I find that I use that myself as a, you know, after like in the morning when I take a walk, I try to get some work done. And then when I notice that a few hours later, my brain is getting tired <laughs> to get the second part of the day as like another, another, I would say second wind of, of brain optimization or function is I'd exercise. And I find that that's very helpful in giving me like a fresh start on, on another few hours of, of, um, of activity, brain activity. Ooh, that's good. Okay. So along the way in helping people, what are some of the, I don't know, what are some of the critical elements you found in being able to help people with their brains? And if someone's already in a, I don't know, in a poor state, they feel like they're forgetting names pretty frequently, or they actually have been diagnosed with, let's say, some early dementia. Is it too late? What can they do? You know, do you have protocols for that kind of thing? Yeah. So we have all this hopeful insight, these hopeful insights now that there's studies like, for example, out of Cornell that have come out recently that have found that if we can catch memory loss early stages. So the first thing is, is that there's many things that can cause memory loss or memory dysfunction. So the first thing is we want to figure out what's going on. Is it simply, you know, 
we're overwhelmed, we're distracted, because that is a part of it. Like we live in a world where there's just so much going on that part of it is that we're just, you know, we're multitasking and we're just doing too much and we're, we're not realizing that that's causing some of our memory issues. If it's beyond that and, and that's not a key part of it, then we actually see that by these essentially interventions, like multiple step interventions, um, combinational approaches. So it's like optimizing people's diet. Um, getting them to exercise, have them learn new things, treat some some underlying conditions that seem disconnected but really do play a role in brain health um, that are really common and off, often overlooked. And putting together this sort of like comprehensive approach, uh, we do see that if you can catch memory loss early, you can in some cases reverse it and in some cases uh, significantly slow down its progression. So even a few years ago, we couldn't say that. And now we have evidence that that, that can happen, which is really hopeful. Well, what are some conditions that uh, may or may not, well, are associated with uh, future brain problems that people don't realize are associated? Yeah. You know, I was just actually reviewing some studies just this morning and something that is, it's actually in my book, but it's it was a new study that just brings more evidence to this idea is that somebody's blood pressure in their 30s impacts their brain health in their 70s. And we see these patterns over and over again that Things that are like memory loss is something that takes oftentimes uh, 10, 20, 30, 40 years to develop. So it's the roots of things that are happening years before blood pressure is one of them. And, you know, knowing what your blood pressure is, trying to think about keeping it to like 110 over 70 or 110 uh, over 80. And we have such good treatments for for blood pressure that it, it's something that we would say like, oh, let's leverage that. Let's use that to our advantage so we can protect the brain long term. Um, another example is just heart health in general plays a big role in in memory loss. Most people that have memory loss have some heart issue um, because the heart is just critical for supplying blood and oxygen and nutrients to the brain. Diabetes, fifty uh, percent of our population um, either has prediabetes or diabetes. Many people don't know they have diabetes or prediabetes, and it's besides age, our single greatest risk factor for developing memory loss or Alzheimer's or dementia because diabetes and Alzheimer's actually have very similar underlying mechanisms. Um, and we now know that brain health is related to metabolism. And so it's another example where if we effectively treat diabetes, the risk of that increased risk of, of, of dementia or memory loss goes down significantly. In some cases, goes all the way back down to like the risk disappears. So that's just two examples of where we see conditions where, you know, the theme of the book is we have really good treatments for things that are often overlooked that can impact your brain health. Um, we just want to take advantage of them, leverage them, and do everything we can to lower risk to try to push odds in, in people's favor. Well, in regards to the uh, blood pressure issue, it's not just that someone has blood pressure problems in their 30s, it's that that continues all the way through their 70s, and that's why they have a problem? Yeah, so it definitely it, it's, it's compounding. But what we see is that if if blood pressure is if somebody has blood pressure issues in their 30s and you treat it effectively, then they have a protection of um, for their for their brain health. They have a lower risk. Now, if they if starting in their 30s, if they have high blood pressure issues with blood pressure, that increases the risk down the road. So it's not something that's like oh, it's just a year or you know a few months ahead of time we're starting to see dysfunction. It's just like so much longer than we thought, which is on one hand hopeful because it says like wait we can. We can identify these things, you know, people can get their blood pressure and you get in the pharmacy and they can be on, there's all these, you know, things people can do now to, to treat something that, that is helpful for their brain on top of just being important for their overall health. 
But how do you know it'll help someone 40 years later? I highly doubt there's longitudinal studies that go that long. Uh, yeah, there are. So that was the study that I was reading today was they actually have done oh. these studies. Yes, amazing. Yeah, they've done these studies where they track people. Hmm. Okay. So I don't know what other different levels of optimization people can do. Let's say someone just wants, you know, someone that would normally uh, use nootropics and wants to maximize their brain health versus someone that's having a problem remembering names and just wants to get their brain health back to an earlier state in their life or to normal. What are some of the protocols that you've discussed in your book? Yeah. So if you're just thinking about like day-to-day memory, there's a whole chapter there on like, you know, how do I remember people's names? How do I remember I put my keys or park my car or, you know, these things that are actually normal. It's normal to have those sort of like memory issues moment to moment. But, uh, you know, if they're happening with increasing frequency, they're happening all the time and we want to figure out what's going on. We, we no longer want to say, oh, significant memory loss is a normal part of aging. Because a few years ago, that was sort of the the way people communicated about this. They just said, oh, you know, you know, that's just part of aging. People lose their, you know, lose their memory. But we now know that shouldn't be happening. There's things that we can do. Now, again, it's okay to have, you know, forget an appointment here or there, forget somebody's name. That's all normal. But if you want to just think about what are the things that you can do to lessen those incidences of happening, um, we've learned so much about how the brain works. And we've also learned from uh, memory champions or people who actually compete in memory competitions. And what's interesting is they tap into all these really kind of fun things about how our brain works in order to optimize their memory. And one thing that it's important to be aware of is that your brain doesn't really want to remember most things. It wants to, it's constantly filtering things out because there's just so much information hitting your brain. So there's some like things that you can do to pass what we would say like as a threshold of, you know, oh, that's something that I would, my brain is going to remember. And so like just a quick Quick tip on this is that in order for your brain to remember information, it's much more likely to remember information if it's like emotional, if it's if it's scary, if it's silly, if it's funny. Like if you just think about information that is emotional, very likely if you think about your ancestors and our brain hasn't changed in you know, a very long time, we have the same brain people had quite a long time ago. Um, information that's emotional gets tagged in, by a certain chemicals in the brain when you make the memory, when you, you make the basically your, your brain cells make a, a synaptic connection that houses the memory. We now know that emotional memories are tagged. So your brain goes, remember this, <laughs> this is important. This is, this could be based on, you know, this could help you survive, especially, um, you know, if you think about evolutionarily, those things were important as opposed to like the password for your, your, that account that you can't remember. If it's this random string of numbers or, or letters, your brain probably isn't going to remember it because it's just not, it's not important evolutionarily. But your brain, if it's emotional, it is. So like a really simple trick is just practice things that you have to remember by making them silly, funny, scary, if you want to go that route. Like you want to remember someone's name, like silly rhymes. I know this sounds stuff sounds ridiculous, but if you look at memory champions and you look at how the brain works, like taking an extra second or two and being like, I'm going to make this memory, not just the memory, but I'm going to build upon it and, and give some emotion to it your brain is much more likely to remember it. So that's just one like really simple um, tip. Takes an extra few seconds, but can save you a lot of time remembering things. Ooh, okay, that makes sense. For someone, let's say in their 40s, they're starting to forget names and places. It takes them a second or two to get uh, a name into their head. I've heard that commonly. I've experienced it. What do you think is going on there? I mean, I know it depends on the person. but Yeah, uh, yeah. in general, you know, obviously there's many different reasons for that, as you, as you stated, but in, in terms of just like a, a general principle is that 
in order for you to remember information and recall it, you have to, there's a part of your brain called the hippocampus. And what's interesting is that we now know that this part of the brain really likes you to focus on information uninterrupted for about seven to 10 seconds. And what's happening is, is that that is another threshold that tells your brain, oh, this information is important. And when you, when you learn something or you see something, it first goes essentially to the hippocampus. It's like a waiting room for the brain. And then the rest of your brain decides, is this information worth it? Or is this a complete waste of my time? <laughs> because if it's worth it, it leaves the hippocampus and it's transferred on to other parts of the brain involved in long-term memory. You're going to store it and remember it. If it's not worth it, your brain like kind of just filters it out. And we're doing this all day long because there's just so much information. So, you know, if you're, if you're having trouble remembering a name or you're having trouble, you know, you're, you're wondering like, you, you know, information's not sticking like it used to. As we get a little bit older, multitasking, distractions, they really do interfere with our brain's ability to take information from the hippocampus and transfer it on. So a really simple tip that, again, these things sound silly, but if you practice it, it's people are often amazed how beneficial it is, is that if you want to remember someone's name, you want to remember something like say, okay, I'm going to eliminate all distraction. I'm going to put my phone down, put it down you know, the, the screen or the two screens that I'm looking at, and I'm just going to focus on this and nothing but this for the next seven to 10 seconds. People are surprised how much more they remember. Because if you really think about it, we live in a world where often we don't spend two seconds remembering remembering where we parked our car, put our keys. We're often just on to the next or we're multitasking. If you've had that experience where you're like, you're doing something, you turn, you check your phone, you go back, and you're like, wait, what was I just doing? It's that like constant. Oh, yeah. It's challenging. So a little bit slowing down can be really helpful. Yeah, I'm always trying to increase my uh, attention span. I feel like it's been fragmented by smartphone use. And I don't use social media, but still, even just using the smartphone, it feels like it's fragmented. Yeah, absolutely. And it's so, it's so you know, brain scientists have been hired to design the smartphone so that it, it's constantly tugging at us and our brain saying, you know, check me. And so it's being aware of that and, and like finding times to like put it away and take a break where it can be helpful and getting that attention back. In younger people, are they able to multitask or is no one able to multitask where they can just hide it better or their brain can accommodate it better? What, what's your thoughts there? It, it depends upon the person, but in general, when we're younger, we are better able to multitask in some ways. So for example, like driving, we shouldn't be multitasking while driving really at any age, <laughs> but that's, we see that in, in these studies, that's dangerous. But you know, Going from task to task when we're younger, people tend to be better at like what's called their working memory, which is like a, almost like a scratch pad in your brain, like a, a piece of paper where you kind of hold information and then you, you refer back to it. As we get a little bit older, that diminishes. And we can definitely improve upon it by practicing, but you, you kind of have to practice for most people. We have to do these tricks that we're talking about where you make information um, you know, you focus on it a little bit longer or you make it more emotional or some other tricks too. But that is something that we see as we get older diminishes. Um, but there's other parts of memory that as we get older, stay very steady and strong. Our ability to like, you know, learn and, and remember is, is in general, if we take time to do it, it seems to be pretty constant throughout our life, our lifetime if we practice it. But that ability to like jump between tasks um, does get, does diminish in most people. Oh, have you studied people that are active, lifelong learners? And how neuroprotective is that? Or how good the brain is that? Yeah, I mean, there, there are these studies, they call them um, uh, superagers. <laughs> and a superager is a person who is in their like 70s, 80s, 90s, up to 100. 
and they have the memory of someone who's like uh, like decades younger when you test them on memory tests. And some of them like astoundingly have the memory of someone who's like 25 years old. And their secrets are basically all the things we're talking about. But one thing that you just mentioned that they consistently seem to prioritize, many of them prioritize is lifelong learning. And we see clearly how important that is, that there's something very different in the brain to reviewing information that you already know, which can be good. Like if you're learning a song on the piano and you keep practicing the same song over and over again, there's benefits to that. You get better at it, um, which is good, or practicing a sport, some specific aspect of a sport. But learning something new, like outside of your field of expertise, is one of the best things you can do for your brain. Because it's not only forcing your brain to make new connections, which your memories are stored in. As we get older, we just naturally lose some connections. So making new ones by learning new things, lifelong learning is just so critically important. But also we realize that there's there's some chemicals that are released in the brain when we learn new things that actually keep the brain more youthful. Um, this chemical called norepinephrine. But the short answer that, I, that I'll sum up is, yes, learning new things in multiple different ways is one of the best things you can do for your brain to protect it long term. Anyone that you know that's uh, gone to extremes in terms of optimizing their brain, you know, in a healthy way, not screwing themselves up, but that has done it and just seen market improvement. And if so, what kind of improvement was it? I would say that extremes, I would say is something that we're more, I would say more concerned about because, you know, anything in anything going overboard, you know, too much of, you know, people going like, I'm going to too much exercise can lead to inflammation, which is another issue. So I would say like a balanced approach um, is where we see a lot of benefit in terms of um, not, it doesn't have to be extreme. And, and so being aware that like, you know, we want to manage our stress. Stress is a, is a key part of this. Um, our immune system, we want to keep it balanced. That's another key part of it. So I would say that a moderate balanced approach and really trying to find activities that hit more than one thing. So if we, if we just think about things we've talked about, like we talked about walking, we talked about morning light. So taking a walk in the morning is something where you're like, oh, there's two things I can combine. Um, and a really moderate, like sensible approach. That's where we, we really see more benefit. Uh, last question. What about nootropics? you know, brain boosting type substances. What's your experience and thoughts on them? Do they work? Are they harmful? I think they fall in the category of we just need more research. You know, there's definitely things that are, there's definitely marketing that jumps ahead of the science. Um, and we want to be careful about that. Anytime somebody is taking something that's in a supplement form, we want to really make sure that they need it. It's not interfering with other th medications they could be taking and that they're, they're just being careful because- you know, when it comes to supplements, we really don't have strong evidence that there's anything that you can take that is really, like we could point to a really strong study or a multiple studies where we say, okay, this is really beneficial. Instead, it's like people, you know, they say it helps them or it's small studies funded by the, you know, the companies that make these medications or these, these supplements, I should say. So I just want to be careful. You know, we don't, see, hopefully someday there will be something that we can point to um, but at this point, we're still saying that, you know, the lifestyle factors, the diet is critically important. Um, supplements can be used, but we just want to be careful that they can do harm too. We just want to be careful that they're not being, that they're being used really responsibly and under the care of a physician because there can be negative consequences. So there's no clear signal and possibly a negative signal that nootropics have any effect? Or is it more long-term use of them? Or it's just, is it an it's area that should... It's just an, yeah, it's an area that is, the, the reason why it's murky and as you said, a mess um, is because these things aren't regulated in terms of quality of, we know what's in them. We can be confident. The studies are just, we need studies there. They're just not 
done. They're not done in a way that is large scale and that they're, you know, double blind, placebo controlled, things that we get really strong evidence from. There's definitely things that we're like, oh, that's interesting. And there's emerging evidence there. We need more studies, but there's nothing that I, that we, I wish we could, I wish we could say, you know, we just, everybody take this, but we're just not at that point. Mm. Okay. Well, very good. Uh, can you restate the name of your book? And uh, I guess it's available on Amazon, everywhere books are sold or where can yeah, yeah, get more info? Uh, yeah. The book is called The Age Proof Brain. And it's really just simple, practical strategies um, rooted in brain science that can really, I would just say, get the best of your brain each day, boost memory, focus, and productivity, and protect it years down the road. And it's, you know, very empowering. It's not like a boring science book. It's, it's filled with, you know, just like, oh, wow, I could do that. I can do those things. And I see why scientifically that that's helpful. Okay. Well, very good, Mark. Thank you for coming on the podcast and uh, explaining all this. And I'm sure most everyone wants to improve their brain function. So it sounds like a very promising thing that you've written about. So thank you. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Magnesium is integral for 600 plus biochemical processes in the human body. And yet most people are deficient. Common signs of magnesium deficiency include fatigue, muscle weakness, stunted growth, poor immune function, poor concentration and memory, hormonal imbalances, bone and teeth problems. Most people think grabbing a bottle of whatever cheap stuff on the shelf or at the top of Amazon will solve this. The common misconception is that consuming more magnesium will automatically improve health and well-being. The truth is there are various forms of magnesium, each of which is essential for a variety of physiological processes. Most people are deficient in all forms of magnesium, while even those considered healthy typically only ingest one or two kinds. Consuming all seven of magnesium's primary forms is the key to accessing all of its health benefits. That's why we pack seven forms of 450 milligrams of elemental magnesium into each serving of Wild Mag Complex. One dose a day is all you need. Learn more and grab a bottle today at wildfoods.co. Use code GENIUS for 10% off your order. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.